Remember when the Olympics were every four years? Now it feels like we just finished one pandemic Olympics and we're on to the second. Has time stopped? What happened? Did they just put the skateboarders on the snow? What year is it? Fuck COVID. And welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. I've been thinking a lot about our media lately. From Tucker Carlson doing an entire primetime segment on the brown M&M shoes, to the New York Times printing deceptive clickbait titles and op-eds from known liars because they think it'll sell, to major corporations systematically buying up and dismantling the entire media structure in the shadows, something has clearly gone wrong. This idea of journalism as the final check on power or the purveyor of facts to keep us informed has been shattered by the profit-making entertainment paradigm, the influx of fake news, and the consolidation of media owners, and we are all suffering because of it. We look to the media to help us form our worldview, our opinions, and our understanding of what is happening around us. And if it turns out that they are simply there to turn a profit, then where does that leave us? Without a common starting point, a set of facts that people with conflicting viewpoints can agree on, it's almost impossible to really address any of the problems the world is facing. Is climate change real or not? Was the election stolen or not? Are Democrats satanic pedophiles who eat babies or not? As Stephen Leandowski from the University of Bristol says, having a large number of people in a society who are misinformed is absolutely devastating. And we can see that in real time as we come up on 900,000 dead to the coronavirus and a completely divided country teetering on autocracy. So with that in mind, I thought we'd take a look at how our media got off track, what we should be looking out for, and why we should be demanding better laws, stronger repercussions, and more personal accountability. Right off the bat, let's be clear that both liberal and conservative media have problems that are fundamentally based in the consolidation of ownership and the model of making money. As Eliz Mizon says in their article, How to Fix the Media, news is expensive to produce, and companies have lost millions in revenue streams over the past few decades, which has caused them to lay people off, offer lower pay, and force fewer journalists to deliver even more content to stay competitive. This lack of money causes news sources to hire people fresh out of school who aren't prepared to do their jobs, burn reporters out, or partake in what the industry calls journalism where the journalists write their articles using the official government line or corporate press releases or media outlets like the AP instead of doing the research themselves. Their need to crank out product means that what they're churning out isn't original, often has a distinctive slant, and certainly doesn't speak truth to power. Trust in the media is at an all-time low. Before 2004, it was common for a majority of Americans to say that they had faith in the media. But now, only about a third has any trust at all in the fourth estate, which is a pretty terrible statistic for any institution designed to inform the public. Donald Trump can be credited with undermining the media during his years as president, but Trump didn't come up with using the media to lie to people. Propaganda is as old as the day is long. Hitler himself was a paid propagandist for the German army and wrote in Mein Kampf that the correct use of propaganda is a true art. And when Hitler came to power, he used that art to build the concept of the Lügenpress, or the lying press, in order to control the narrative and to make sure his followers didn't trust any independent news sources and would have to look to him as their primary source of information. Trump seems to have understood this concept from the very beginning, coining the term fake news for anything he didn't agree with or want people to know. 
If what he said didn't match what he did, he would tell people to deny what they saw. And anyone who spoke out against him or just noticed reality would be considered person non grata. And for many journalists looking to get access to the leader of the free world, that kind of left a gray area for hard-hitting questions or negative press. Most of the time, they didn't even ask follow-up questions or acknowledge what they could see with their own eyes. Take the amount of people at Trump's inauguration. Anyone could see that Obama's crowd size was five times as big, but we had to listen to Press Secretary Sean Spicer swear up and down that Trump had the biggest inauguration numbers ever. And even if those lies could be proved false, Trump's spokesperson, Kellyanne Conway, coined the term alternative facts to explain any confusion. Oh, you don't like this truth? Then how about this one? So no matter what Trump did or continues to do, or how crazy he acts, or how erratic or how self-serving, how many people he has ripped off or apparently raped, it's all fake news alternative facts. For many Americans, you just have to choose to believe what you want to believe. And then that's the truth. So here we are, four years later, with a virus that's killed almost a million Americans, and we still have people unwilling to trust any expert that doesn't say what they already wanted to hear, even if it kills them. The media is supposed to act as a check on power, to hold those in charge accountable and help us, the public, understand complicated issues. They are supposed to break things down and make things clear and hold our leaders to their word. But the 24-hour news cycle threw a wrench in that entire agenda. You would think filling all those hours of programming would make us feel more informed. But if anything, it's made us less informed, more divided, more angry, and more fearful. The old expression, if it bleeds, it leads, meaning the most dramatic story is the top story, has become a real problem with competing for-profit news networks. By constantly seeking to outdo each other, these networks and online sites are constantly chasing drama. And if they don't have drama, then they have learned to create drama. There's a well-known expression about journalists that goes, if someone says it's raining and another person says it's dry, it's not your job to quote them both. It's your job to look out the window and find out which one is true. Unfortunately, when the Fairness Doctrine, a policy created in 1949 requiring those who held broadcasting licenses to present controversial issues of public importance in a manner that was honest and equitable and balanced, was killed by the Reagan administration, things kind of went off the rails. Right-wing radio, particularly Rush Limbaugh, the one that told only one side of the story, and entertainment journalism were both born. Almost overnight, the line between news and entertainment became blurred. Now, just so you know, despite what you might hear, traditional broadcast networks are still beholden to slander laws and journalistic integrity rules, which is why CNN, though its commentary can lean left, had to pay out a huge settlement to the kid from Covington Catholic after they broadcast that he was a racist, and it turned out later that they didn't know the full story. Is the kid a bit of a prick? Yeah but they didn't have the right to report him as a racist, and they lost a huge defamation case because of it. Contrast that with Tucker Carlson winning his most recent defamation case because the judge ruled that watching his show, no reasonable person would think Tucker was telling the truth. And yet, many people do. The point is, despite the fact the media is often painted with the same brush, there are still networks held accountable for what they say, while others, with all the trappings of a news network like Fox or OAN, are not held to the same standard. Yet both are given equal weight as legitimate information sources because there is no rule that says otherwise. We found ourselves at a point in our country's history where certain people can broadcast whatever conspiracy theories they want directly into the public's consciousness without any legal pushback. And because of this, many consumers have lost the ability to discern truth from lies. 
I mean, it's either raining or it's not. But if our media is allowed to say whatever they want, how are regular people who can't look outside for themselves supposed to know? This journalistic lack of accountability and the competition bred from networks competing for ad dollars is what led us to one third of the country now believing Joe Biden didn't really win the 2020 election, or that we should side with Russia over America as it contemplates invading Ukraine, or that Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a monster who deserves to die. It's this anything goes mentality that leads Fox News to continue to perpetuate an alternative reality that appeals to viewers rather than reporting the truth. Democratic cities are declining cesspools, Biden is senile, schools are shut down, and the virus isn't a big deal. None of this is true, and yet this is what they say. We need rules around what you can say over the airways. Because if it's just about getting clicks and eyeballs on the screen, then we're always going to end up in the basement throwing chairs Jerry Springer style. It's why CNN puts eight conflicting points of view on the same screen at the same time and then allows every guest to talk over each other. It's not facts and context and critical discussion so we understand and make informed decisions. It's ginned up conflict for viewership so we do nothing but keep watching. Remember when the news was boring and it came on three times a day? You could watch it, know what was going on, and move on with your life. You could take what you'd learned and make reasonable decisions because of it. Now we're being fed crisis entertainment 24 hours a day, and even though it's terrible for us, our appetite for it has become almost insatiable. We can't get enough conflict. And who better to sow conflict and bring those eyeballs than Donald Trump, Mr. Showman himself? Now they might not have liked him, but the media lost their collective minds over him. Man. People will watch that guy do anything. He's like that cat that wanders onto a Broadway stage in the middle of a show, and then the whole audience just starts watching the cat. I mean, the dancers can be doing fan kicks up the wazoo, but what is the cat doing? I mean, it's understandable. It's human nature. We watch crazy. We stare at oddities. We rubberneck car wrecks. It's exciting when something is unpredictable, when anything can happen. Everything else seems boring in comparison. And we have been trained by the media, our endless television channels, and our smartphones to not know how to be bored. Trump could do anything, and they would broadcast it. He could say anything, behave in the most awful ways, repeat the most terrible, ridiculous, unsubstantiated things, and they'd flood the media landscape with it. They'd often put it up without context or commentary, because millions of people would tune in to see it. It didn't matter if he made you furious or excited. If you were hate-watching or you loved everything he said, you were watching. And the networks and the journalists and the commentators got rich from it. But that's not journalism. Frankly, it was just deeply lazy broadcasting. I mean, when he was on the 2016 campaign trail, there was even a half an hour when almost every single network filmed an empty podium waiting for him to arrive instead of airing the speech his opponent Hillary Clinton was giving at the time. Trump spoon-fed the media endless narratives because he did an endless amount of deranged things. And it was easy for them to just keep broadcasting. They loved the melodrama, the theatrics, the what-did-he-say-today limited work they had to do. But it was also deeply detrimental to the psyche and health of our population. Weren't you exhausted during those years? I'm still exhausted. To this day, the media is still trying to catch that high they got under Trump. They make trouble where there's no trouble. They cover the worst people who say the most insane things in an attempt to get back to where they were. Why am I listening to what the pathological liar Madison Cawthorn has to say? Why am I listening to Lauren Boebert? That girl is confused in her own closet. I'm listening because they sell. Outrage sells. 
The media also has an almost pathological need to both sides every story so as not to alienate any potential viewers or squander any ad dollars. This is why the profit model is a problem. Where journalists should be focusing on the real issues America's facing, like the rise of autocracy and white supremacy, the destruction of women's rights, the complete abandonment of democracy by one of our two major political parties, they're putting out stories on Hunter Biden's art, the canceling of Christmas, and how CRT is racist against white people. And the media just goes along. It's almost as if news people realize how much more fun it is to do sports. Just up, down, wins, losses, superstar players, big money endorsements. But that's not how news is supposed to work. And without them out here telling us what is the truth or calling a spade a spade, like there aren't two sides to book burning. America is in real peril. It's unsustainable to have one third of the population living in a different reality than the rest of us. And that group is being convinced that maybe they don't want the truth. They just want their truth. They want leaders who tell them what they want to hear. The virus isn't bad. Education is. Your way of life is under threat. These people took your opportunities. Even if it can't be proved, there's enough information on websites and social media and yes, some broadcast networks that confirm their bias. So they don't have to look elsewhere. But this is how democracies die. American philosopher and Yale professor Jason Stanley, author of How Fascism Works, says the destruction of truth is a key tenant to the fascist playbook. You delegitimize the media and the free press by connecting them to your opponent, liberal news. You sell facts as one big conspiracy to undermine the nation, or you set yourself up as the savior. Only you are telling the truth. The only news that's true is the news that agrees with you. People have to have faith in you because only you can save them. And over the past six years, Trump has been allowed to create this self-perpetuating narrative between himself and his supporters. And the Republican Party, particularly the RNC, is now doing the exact same thing. We're now supposed to believe that January 6th was simply legitimate political discourse. This is why covering Trump like he was a legitimate leader and not a complete con man from the beginning was a mistake. That's why not holding fake news sites like Newsmax and OAN and, yes, Fox, accountable for their lies, has caused so much damage. We've allowed propaganda room to grow. We've made a successful business model out of shamelessly lying, and we now find ourselves in the incredibly precarious position where almost half of America lives in a different reality than the other half. Since we're talking about living in a different reality as other people, this feels like a good time for a palate cleanser. And since the media has clearly fucked us, let's take a little break and talk about sex. Specifically, the reboot of Sex and the City and Just Like That. Don't cancel me, but I really liked it. Maybe I just needed something in my life that wasn't political. Maybe I like living in the post-COVID world the show exists in. Maybe it just speaks to the time of my life that I'm in. But for whatever reason, I don't get why people hated it. So many reviews just gutted it that I almost didn't check it out because I'm one of those people who actually loved the original show. Sex and the City has always felt like a time capsule of my life. I moved to New York in my mid-20s, the year the show began, and I left New York the year the show ended. So the restaurants they went to, the bars that were hot, the New York-y moments they were having was everything I was experiencing at the time. Yes, the characters were 10 years older than me, but we were living very similar lives. So I have a real soft spot for the show and its characters. So much so that the idea that they could ruin it more than they did with the movies made me sad. So when I finally sat down to watch it, I was ready for it to suck. I thought, that's the thing, you can't go back. You can't recreate magic. Some things just have to stay in the past. 
But I think that's exactly what the show got right. It's not trying to live in the past. It's not trying to recreate anything. Yes, there's reflections of the old show, but this is something brand new. We're dealing with many of the same characters, but they've changed. They've grown up. And yet again, the show seems to have captured a part of my life. Once again, these characters are dealing with the same things I'm dealing with. It's just this time it's not sex and dating. It's kids and marriage and aging and medical crises. There's an entire episode built around Carrie's hip surgery. And it comes with one of the nicest scenes between two women friends left in an awkward hospital situation. The show's just real. Real in a way the old show wasn't. Yes, it's still a heightened visual extravaganza, with the clothes and the apartments being like opening the pages of Vogue and Architectural Digest, but it's far more grounded than it used to be. And for those who say the show just tried to slip in different ethnicities and minority groups that had been left out the first time, I say, good on ya. Those characters were necessary. The show was way too vanilla. They needed fresh voices and perspectives, and their casting is incredible. These aren't periphery characters. They're fully fleshed out people existing in the same sphere as the original cast. The whole thing is just fun, moving even, and it deals with real issues without trying to regain its own youth or force its characters back into their old boxes. In fact, the worst parts of the show are the moments where they tried to do that. Just like anyone who tries to relive the good old days and mostly just ends up with a massive hangover, we just don't roll like that anymore. The show grew up like I grew up. And that's probably why people don't like it. People don't like change. They have expectations that we're always going to be what we were. And if we step out of that box, it makes them uncomfortable. But that's okay. Be uncomfortable. That's where the magic happens. That's where we grow. Even if we're sometimes cringe while we do it. So watch it or don't watch it. But I'll tell you, if someone tells you it's shitty, just make sure you decide for yourself. And no, this pod is not sponsored by HBO. I'm just a real person who watches real things in the real world, and sometimes I talk about it. Anyway, we'll be right back. Now, like most of us, I'm self-critical. I see all my flaws. Getting older is no joke. You find yourself horrified looking in the mirror sometimes, like what the hell happened? It's easy to fixate on the negatives, but we have to be kind and take care of ourselves. And one of the best ways we can do that is to take care of our skin. And that's why I'm so excited to partner with Apostrophe. When I was younger, I had acne. I had acne when most people I knew didn't have acne, and it was horrible. I was embarrassed and ashamed, and I would have done anything back then to have been able to deal with it from the comfort of my own home instead of waiting for two hours in a dermatologist's office once a month. Apostrophe is a prescription skincare company that connects you with board-certified dermatologists online who will create personalized treatment plans that are tailored to your skin. You just have to fill out the apostrophe quiz about your skin's goals and medical history, snap a couple of selfies, and your dermatologist creates a completely customized plan. Mine even texted me to make sure we were on the same page with what I needed. It couldn't have been easier. The entire process was seamless. No doctor's offices, no pharmacy, no waiting in line. Apostrophe offers science-backed oral and topical medications clinically proven to help clear acne, deal with breakouts, anti-aging, skin texture, dark spots, and fine lines. You tell them what your skin needs, and they will take it seriously. I have to tell you, as someone with lifelong skin issues, I wish this company had been around 20 years ago. What a difference that would have made to my young life. But I'm certainly glad they're around now, and I'm already noticing a difference in my skin's texture and brightness from the night cream on my plan. And right now, we have a special deal for our audience. Save $15 off your first visit with an apostrophe provider at apostrophe.com slash politicsgirl, where you use our code politicsgirl. The code is only available to our listeners. To get started, go to apostrophe.com slash politicsgirl and click begin visit. 
and then use our code politicsgirl at sign up and your first visit will only be $5. That's apostrophe, A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E dot com slash politicsgirl and use that code politicsgirl to get your dermatologist crafted treatment for $5. We thank apostrophe for sponsoring the podcast and for caring enough about our skin to do what they're doing. If you're anything like me, you spend way too much time in front of a screen. I sit at a computer all day. My eyes get crazy tired, they water, and I get terrible headaches. I heard good things about blue light glasses, so I tried a bunch of them. You know, those cheap over the internet, they say they'll do something, they don't do something glasses. Honestly, I'm absolutely sure one of them gave me a headache. I had a bit better luck having a blue filter put into my reading glasses, but my favorites by far are my Blue Blocks blue light computer glasses. They are clear lens glasses outfitted with my prescription that were delivered right to my house. Blue Blocks are made in optics laboratories in Australia. They have stylish frames that have been featured in GQ and Vogue. I personally chose these white and gold aviator ones. They're a bit more expensive than the other brands, but absolutely worth the investment to get the relief. And honestly, if I just bought these ones first, I would have actually saved money rather than wasting it on all those other pairs. Blue Blocks glasses come in non-prescription, prescription, and reading options. They have glasses for every need. Blue light for digital eye strain, summer glow with yellow lenses for helping with low mood and migraines, and sleep plus with amber lenses for improving sleep. I have to try those ones next. So go to blueblocks.com slash politicsgirl and use the coupon code politicsgirl to save 15%. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X dot com slash politicsgirl and use the coupon code politicsgirl to save 15%. They ship in rapid time and have easy returns and exchanges. In a world of screens, we ask a lot of our eyes. Let's take care of them. That's blueblocks.com slash politicsgirl and have your eyes start feeling better today. I was recently asked, what is something you've always wanted to know more about? And I thought, who the hell has time to learn anything new right now? But then I thought, well, actually, my son is currently taking a class on myths, and I was talking to him because I've always loved Greek myths, and he was like, that's not what we're doing, mom. It's mythology. And I was like, what the hell's the difference? And then I went to Wondrium, and I saw Joseph Campbell and the power of myth, which was a huge big deal limited series in PBS back in the 80s that went on to become a very famous book. It's a six-part series that turns out to have had a profound influence on millions of people, including Star Wars creator George Lucas, who used Campbell's research when he was creating his own hero's journey. The series deals with how humans understand our world through stories, the concept of sacrifice, love, rebirth. It deals with life and death and the decline of rituals that used to help us navigate our place in the world. My son was right. Mythology is far more than just Zeus and Poseidon. And that's the thing about Wondrium. However you like to learn, and whatever you like to learn, there's a topic and a way. They have video, audio, interactive how-to guides, documentaries. You can learn from teachers and professors and experts who will inspire you and remind you that learning can be something fun. So consider signing up for Wondrium today. Wondrium is offering my listeners a special free 22-day trial membership to celebrate the new year. To get this offer, you need to visit wondrium.com slash politicsgirl. Again, that's W-O-N... D-R-I-U-M dot com slash politics girl and get your learning on today. And we're back and talking about the problem with the media. Now, the problem isn't just limited to the lies one side tells or what for profit media does to make money. It's also about who's the gatekeeper for what becomes news. Alec Karkatsanis, founder and executive director of the Civil Rights Corps, recently wrote that he'd noticed something fascinating. He said, Around the same time, each major corporate news source began talking about a new crime hysteria, a crime of theft that was happening all around the country. Bakar Katsanis said, 
If you look deeper, these stories started to feel familiar. Kar Katsanis points out that all these articles about retail theft were using the exact same words and phrasing across multiple news outlets across the country. Words like brazen and organized crime and flash mob and smash and grab. He questioned how that was happening. How are all these different papers writing about the same thing in the same way, using the same words in different cities? He uses the Chicago Tribune as an example. He says, look at the sources for the article. They're all CEOs, retail lobby groups, national retail federations, business executives, police and DAs. And you might think, okay, so what? Who else are they going to talk to about retail theft? But Karakatsanis points out that when you see sources like this, you have to ask yourself, how did this news get to the reporters? What is the goal of the article? How did they choose which voices to quote and which to ignore? And who benefits from those choices? Karakatsanis points out that one of the many things that casual news readers don't know is that articles and the specific words used in them are often carefully crafted by expensive corporate marketing consultants. It's something wealthy business groups pay a lot of money for. It's a big industry where corporations have PR firms use workshopped words and phrases when they pitch to journalists. So it's not a coincidence when different journalists all over the country are using the same words. It's deliberate. Those words were chosen by wealthy people to drive the narrative in a specific way. It's intentional. And when you recognize it, it changes the way you think about what you're reading. Karakatsanis says, look at the phrase smash and grab, which is being used all the time right now to describe crime in America. Look at it as a marketing tool. It's vague and scary and hard to fact check. Overall statistics show that this kind of theft is just an infinitesimal amount of retail theft. But suddenly, it's all we're talking about. The result is a distracted public worried about brazen thieves smashing and grabbing. And if they're worried about that, they're not paying attention to far more important issues. People who work in retail and retail loss prevention are the first to tell you that corporate doesn't really care if their stuff is stolen like that because they write off the losses on their taxes. So then why would they want us talking about it? Karakatsanis points out that while larceny and burglary and auto theft account for around $13 billion in losses for corporations a year, those same corporations steal around $40 billion from their own employees in the form of wage theft, like not paying the set minimum wage or not paying for overtime or not paying for rest breaks. So while they're writing off $13 billion on their taxes, they are taking $40 billion from their employees. One of these thefts is far greater than the other, and yet which one are we reading about in the paper? We have to ask ourselves what we care about. Why are we up in arms about giant insured retailers having things stolen, but not upset about people being paid poverty wages, or corporations, or Wall Street, or the banks stealing money? What crimes matter? The crimes we can pin on someone who looks like a criminal? The crimes you can put someone away for because they can't afford a fancy lawyer? Or the crimes that do real damage to our society as a whole, like corporate wage theft, or Jared Kushner and Steven Mnuchin stealing hundreds of millions of dollars from taxpayers by giving their friends and companies PPE money. Right now, it's the former that we read about in the papers and here on TV. We need to be aware that there seems to be an incredible amount of coordination between corporate owners, police PR departments, and corporate media. We must help each other become more critical consumers of the news and hold journalists accountable for the role they are playing in changing our perception of issues into something that ends up supporting destructive policies or only serves the people who paid for the news. 
One of the dirty little secrets of today's journalism is that many articles that appear in your local newspaper involve those paid PR agents who give stories to reporters almost fully written and sourced. Karak Iksana says this is a totally normal way to get stories published these days. And since the PR agents are doing most of the work, most of the facts are already baked in. So you have to consider who is paying the PR companies. Reporters are supposed to describe the world for us, but they often leave out the fact that a lot of their articles are prepackaged stories. There are literally hundreds of thousands of PR agents paid to do this. Media watchers and advocates for truth in media keep pointing out that the real story is that the wealthy and powerful special interests use their resources to manipulate reporters to push narratives that feed their own agenda. Take the picketers in the street when Amazon wanted to build a second headquarters in New York City. The Times reported that massive protests were happening because people really wanted the headquarters and all the jobs that came with it. But the same day that story ran, a local resident went on Twitter to say that the massive protest they'd read about in the paper was just around the corner from their apartment. And it was really just 12 people holding professionally printed signs. So who paid for that story talking about how many people wanted the headquarters? Because what the news reported was not actually what was going on. Karakatsanis notes that what all these stories about brazen theft around America fail to note is that 20 retail leaders like CVS and Target are currently lobbying Congress to crack down on brazen theft. And lo and behold, brazen theft is suddenly the lead story all over the country. Just like New York currently has an anti-bail reform campaign going on, and suddenly there's just article after article talking about how horrible things are happening after people are released due to bail reform. It's almost as if big papers are now more than happy to act as PR for police and retailers and corporations, so we as the consumer have to be more aware of the sources they're using and the potential goals of those sources. It wouldn't be so far off to say you pay for fear-mongering so you can get a bill passed or get a budget raised. You scare the public so you can add more money for police or justify expanded surveillance or give more punitive actions to petty criminals. All goals people in positions of power want. Fear is also very effective at making the public more malleable. We look to those in power to keep us safe if we think we're in danger. But maybe we only think we're in danger because the people in power want us to feel that way. Karakaksanis points out that this is what happens when you lose local reporting. Local reporters would source out employees that actually work in the stores, people who live in the communities. The problem is when most of our reporting comes from large corporate news sources, and then you end up with sources that benefit large corporate sources, people who have their own agenda for the narrative that's reported. 30 years ago, about 80% of what we saw or read or heard was owned by about 25 companies. Today, there are only five or six companies that produce more than 90% of what we see and read and hear. Brian Kareem, journalist and author of Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It, uses the example of Laredo, Texas. He says, when he started in journalism 30 years ago, there was about 100,000 people in Laredo. They had four local newspapers, two in English and two in Spanish. There were three or four television stations that broadcast local news, four radio stations for news, and a local magazine. Today, there is one newspaper, one television station, and three times the amount of people. We have gutted newsrooms all around the country and reduced the amount of reporters and editors at most papers. Most places don't even have local papers anymore. In the past 15 years, more than a quarter of American newspapers have gone out of business. 
Today, half of the daily newspapers are controlled by financial firms and investors who target them for money. McKay Copens recently wrote an article for The Atlantic called Who Killed America's Newspapers? The article describes how the Chicago Tribune was once in Tribune Tower, a soaring, beautiful piece of architecture built in the 1920s. Now it's in an office the size of a Chipotle in an industrial section of town. The paper was bought last May by Alden Global Capital, a secretive hedge fund who started buying newspapers at the end of the last recession. The first thing Alden did was to immediately get rid of 25% of the newsroom. Over the following months, more people left as they were burned out and budgets were cut, but the owners remained silent and secretive about what they were doing. They took no interviews and they revealed no plans. The co-founders of Alden Global Capital, Randall Smith and Heath Freeman, devised this model. Gut the staff, sell the real estate, jack up subscription prices, and wring as much cash as possible out of it until enough readers cancel subscriptions and the paper folds. It's vulture capitalism brought to newspapers. Buy a troubled company, steer them into bankruptcy, and then sell them off for parts. It's the type of work Richard Gere did in Pretty Woman before Julia Roberts unlocked his inner good guy. As of today, Alden controls more than 200 newspapers, including the Tribune, the Baltimore Sun, and the New York Daily News. They are the second largest newspaper owner in America by circulation, and yet the company is obsessively secret. Their website has no information except the firm's name. Profits from newspapers are used to finance their hedge funds' other ventures, like commercial real estate and Greek debt bonds. It is not a newspaper company. It's a hedge fund that buys up papers to milk them for cash. Their only concern seems to be the next quarter's profits. And their investors are secret. When pressed by lawmakers about who invests in their fund, Alden said, there may be certain legal entities and organizational structures formed outside the U.S. Well, that's not suspect at all. The original founder, Smith, hasn't done an interview since the 1980s. There are no known photos of him online. He owns at least 16 mansions in Palm Beach alone and was a major contributor to Trump's campaign. Now, I can't say exactly what that means, but I feel like it doesn't mean nothing. And if you own that many papers but aren't really in the newspaper business, what are you doing and who are you doing it for? If you take a newsroom that used to be packed with curious people reporting on a city and you gut it, you lose a crucial layer of accountability for the people of that city and corruption and mismanagement are able to run rampant. This seems to be where things are headed. The news business is clearly the place to go if you're a rich dude looking to make money and wield influence. The Murdoch family made that quite clear with Fox News. The Koch family reportedly sees the media as the next phase of their 10-year strategy to shift the country towards their political goals of no taxes, no regulations, no unions. Basically nothing that would interfere with their pursuit of profit. The Kochs have already bought their lawmakers. Now they need to go and buy public sentiment. In fact, with that desire in mind, they actually bid for the Tribune Company themselves in 2019, just as Sinclair Media Broadcast Group, the largest owner of local news stations in the country, did in 2017. The Sinclair's group agenda seems to be more aligned with the Kochs than with the Alden group. They seem less interested in pure profit and more interested in influence. But I'm sure the money doesn't hurt. You might have seen the viral video a couple years ago where local news anchors all over the country were all saying the exact same thing at the exact same time. Those were all Sinclair stations. And the anchors were reading a script that was presented to the local viewers as an authentic opinion, but was actually a set of far-right talking points handed down from Sinclair's digital news subsidiary, Circa. Sinclair dictates content that local anchors have to read. So unlike Fox News, where you know you went there for conservative far-right news, 
Sinclair stations appear to be just your local newscaster reporting facts, when in reality, it's anything but. Circa produces and sends packages to their stations that include scripts for the local anchors to introduce pieces and segments called must-runs, where station managers around the country are directed to work them into their broadcasts. And these must-runs are very far-right. As John Oliver said in his in-depth piece on Sinclair in 2017, there's real power in hearing your trusted local newscaster say something. So we should be very aware that often those same trusted voices are actually just parroting whatever's been dictated by their corporate owners. So when corporations buy up and consolidate stations or remove local news altogether, suddenly our point of view becomes much more narrowed because we're only hearing what certain people want us to hear or what we actively go looking for. Local news is deeply important. It fills an essential role by doing stories that national news misses. Statistics show that when local papers and news stations vanish, voter turnout is lower. There's increased polarization and just a general erosion of civic engagement within a community. Without local news, misinformation also has a lot more room to grow. A lot of people don't trust national news. So without local news, they turn to online sources like Facebook and end up getting their information from questionable sources. In fact, when they broke down the 2016 election, it turned out Trump had the highest numbers in places with limited access to local news. So are we just supposed to turn off our TVs and radios and stop reading the paper because we don't know who owns them and if we might be being played? No. But we do need to get a lot smarter about the way we interact with our media. There are still lots of trusted journalists out there whose work deserves respect. Not all mainstream media is a scam, and according to the Columbia Journalism Review, statistically journalism on the whole is more reliable than it's been before. But because we are more politically polarized, it leads people on the left and the right to accuse the other side of bias. Robert Reich says he's weary of mainstream media, not because it peddles fake news, but because it often favors the status quo. He says, mainstream journalists wanting to appear serious about public policy often rip into progressives for the costs of their proposals, but they never ask moderates or conservatives how they plan to manage the costs of doing nothing about the same problems. He says, a Green New Deal might be expensive, but doing nothing about the climate crisis will almost certainly cost far more. Just like some version of Medicare for All would cost a lot, but the price of doing nothing about America's dysfunctional healthcare system will soon be off the charts expensive. In Reich's opinion, the old left versus right labels are outdated. He believes today's reporters should be writing about democracy versus authoritarianism. Because as he says, acting like the two parties are just two sides of the same coin is both misleading and dangerous. Does the mainstream media just not see that? Are they too dependent on corporate money? Reich thinks that the bias might be subtler than that, and something the reporters and editors might not even be aware of themselves. He reminds us that for these journalists, the ones that are usually based in New York and Washington, being accepted into the circles of power is important, not just for their jobs, but because it's cool. It's cool to hang out with the country's most influential, to have access to them. It makes them feel successful in a way that maybe their paycheck doesn't. But once accepted, they begin to see the world through the eyes of the powerful, and they don't necessarily want to criticize them or lose influence or access or be kicked out of the club. Cue Maggie Haberman's reporting for the New York Times. This obsession the liberal mainstream media has with both siding everything is a product of not wanting to mess with the power structure, but also just an indulgence in false equivalences, where they act like Republicans and Democrats are the same. 
This approach ends up with the media acting like it's just as radical to want to get rid of the filibuster as it is to want to keep it, when the choice is really abolishing the filibuster to save American democracy or destroying American democracy to save the filibuster. As Reich says, those two things are not equivalent, and they shouldn't be reported like they are. So what can we do? Is the media dead? Is it just going to get worse, or is there a way out of this crisis? As Katie Neath writes for Medium, we live in an attention economy. Things that we probably should know are rarely the things we want to know. And because the media news has become entertainment and relies on ad dollars and clicks, the media is going to feed us what we want. We are functioning under the algorithms of companies like Meta and Google and Twitter, where our past choices become the foundations for the information we receive in the future. As Nicholas Carr says in his article, The Inescapable Flow of Content, each of us gets locked into our own feedback loop. Our bias gets amplified and context gets lost. In the end, we either are never exposed to the interesting and important things that are happening around the world, or we only come to the story late, after the window of opportunity to really make any difference has passed. As Neath says, things might not appear to affect us in the beginning, but few things happen in isolation in such a connected world. What's going on with Russia and Ukraine right now will affect us no matter how far away it seems. Look at climate change. It's like we're only now realizing it's a significant problem, but the signs have been there for decades. It's like we're coming in at the end of the story now that the headlines are sensational enough for us to notice, and now it might be too late. We can't go through life with these blinders on, only paying attention to the things we think directly affect us or relying on the media to decide what is important to our lives. We have to be more proactive in learning about the world so we can be more active in shaping it for the better. We have to break the cycle. We need to build and support outlets who seek the truth and work with existing corporate media to support the fact-based journalism it does have that continues to challenge power. If we allow things to continue the way they're going without teaching people how to discern what is true or false, our young people won't know how to absorb information and will be even more vulnerable to conspiracy theories and fakeries that will only continue to get better as time goes on. We need to teach people how to find and access credible news sources and navigate what is now a digital minefield. As Suzanne Nocell, CEO of PEN America says, the goal would be to ground an entire generation in facts, science, basic research skills, and above all, a fundamental refusal to be fooled. She believes we need to have our schools and colleges teach students about media literacy, what makes something reliable reporting, how to be your own fact checker, and how to source if a piece of information is true or false. We all need to be doing that today so we can get a handle on what's coming tomorrow. With that in mind, we might want to be more open to regulation. Nicholas Lehman, a professor at Columbia Journalism School and staff writer at The New Yorker, reminds us that all industries, even industries populated by liberals, have always resisted government regulation of themselves. Journalism and media are an extreme example because so many journalists and media owners were raised on the idea that the First Amendment gives them absolute protection from government interference. But Lehman says this idea that government has no role to play in the media has always been a fantasy. Radio and television were heavily regulated for more than half a century. Even print publications are prohibited from publishing deceptive advertising. But as deregulation came into fashion in the 70s, and when Reagan got rid of the Fairness Doctrine in the 80s, we found ourselves in a world where cable television and broadcasting were almost completely deregulated. And then we got the internet. Looking around at what we have now, the time has clearly come for regulation to return. 
Regulating social media has become a bipartisan cause, and most of us would love to see some sort of fairness doctrine for the new millennium, where we have a creative collaboration between the private sector and the government that can stop this flow of conspiracies and misinformation. Regular people can't keep up on their own. Lehman also recommends that we have some form of government support for local journalism, which, by the way, is something the Biden administration included in the most current version of the Build Back Better bill. And finally, Lehman suggests that journalists themselves embrace the idea that some regulation will be necessary so they can be the ones to help shape the regulations. Because the way we're going now is completely unsustainable. We need to be thoughtful about what we're reading and watching and seeing. We need to ask questions. Think about what the person is trying to convey. What is their intention? People should ask themselves, why is Tucker talking about M&Ms? What's the point? Is he just trying to make me mad? Why do I keep hearing these same buzzwords? Is that something I should be curious about? Is someone just trying to stir up controversy? As Lero Jethro Gibbs famously said, if you feel like you're being played, you probably are. So that's it for today. Work with the assumption that every headline you read is clickbait or corporate PR and can't be relied on unless at the very least you read the full article. Know you can check the bias of anything on lists like Media Bias, Fact Checker, or Snopes.com. And finally, consider financially supporting media outlets that still do real investigative journalism. Genuine news isn't free, nor should it be. As they say, if you're not paying, you're the product. Now go out and make the world a better place. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.